Most new front-end web apps today use React.js. An increasing number of mobile apps are created using the cross-platform components of React Native. GraphQL, Facebook's open-source data-fetching middleware tool, is being used by more and more companies, who are finding that it simplifies their development. Facebook's open-source suite of technologies created a new developer ecosystem. There is an increased demand for engineers who know how to build software with React, React.js, and GraphQL. This was the reasoning behind Gabe Greenberg starting G2i, a developer marketplace of engineers who write React.js, React Native, and GraphQL applications. In this episode, Gabe, Lee Johnson, and Chris Severns, all from G2i, join the show to discuss React and other Facebook open-source technologies, as well as the ecosystem around them. We explored the architecture of a developer marketplace business, and how to scale a consulting company, which is not easy. Before we get to the episode, I want to mention SoftwareDaily.com. Software Daily is a place to post your software projects. You can get feedback, you can find collaborators, and Software Daily itself is all open source. The Software Engineering Daily open source community has been building it for the last year or so, and it's pretty amazing to see what's come together. And now we'd love to see what you are building. If you have an open source application or a side project you've been tinkering with or an academic computer science paper that you want to get feedback on, then come to softwaredaily.com and post your project. Software Daily is about cool projects, new ideas, and creativity. If your project is especially interesting, we'll send you a Software Engineering Daily hoodie or t-shirt or even have you on the podcast to discuss what you're building. So with that, let's get on with this episode. All right, I'm here with the G2i team. Gabe is the CEO of G2i, Lee is the CTO, and Chris is the hiring manager. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Cool. Thanks so much for having us, Jeff. Yep, thank you. So I'm excited to talk to you. I have used G2i as a customer. I've gotten contracting work done with you. I've also worked personally with some of the engineers who have gone through G2i. I'm friends with Caleb Meredith, who now works at Facebook, and he's actually done a show on Software Engineering Daily. He interviewed Brendan Ike about JavaScript, and I know you guys are deeply familiar with JavaScript. I know that's why you led to starting a, a business around React and React Native contracting. And this actually is a, a topic of interest to me. I've done a number of shows covering the contract engineering space, both because I think contract engineering is an interesting route that some engineers choose to take because it gives them a lot of independence. And also, I think that contract engineering is underutilized as a way to build minimum viable products or to augment your workforce. And I just think that the idea of contract engineering is is underexplored as a technical route. And you even have like, like I saw a tweet from Michael Seibel from Y Combinator recently where he was saying that he still sees... Y Combinator applicants that have contracted out the first version of their software, and he sees it as 
as a negative. And I just, I wholly disagree with that notion. Maybe we can get into that more, but I think that speaks to the kind of reductive attitude that a lot of the industry has around contract engineering. So I'm really, I'm hoping to discuss contract engineering and React and React Native today. I guess to start us off, what are the trends that are changing the adoption, the increasing adoption of contract engineering? You've got more clients that are purchasing contract engineering. You've got more engineers that are going in that direction. Why is that changing? That's a great question. I really think to start out, it's just becoming more accepted and it's becoming more just the the way things are headed. The reason being, it being that we're a distributed company dealing with mostly distributed engineers, comes down to you know bandwidth, you know internet bandwidth, as simple as you know how often are we doing video calls? How easy is it to do video calls with somebody? We have a core team member in Nigeria. We have engineers all over Europe, engineers all over South America, and you know five, six, eight years ago, me doing video calls with somebody in Nigeria or, or Kenya, which I've spent a lot of time you know living there. It wasn't really possible to do, you know, regularly, consistently with uh, the bandwidth issues. So just, you know, uh, video calling, you know, whether it's through Zoom, we use uh, ZoomDaily.co, which is a Y Combinator company, whatever your method is, you know, having better bandwidth accessible around the world really matters. And it just allows certain touch points that you just wouldn't have via email. And then, you know, real-time messaging, you know, Slack uh, really has become a way that we can work remotely, work distributed, you know, and have some organization involved in the way that we message back and forth. And also just a a tight remote culture, you know, having companies that are actually thinking about that first. When we've interviewed candidates, they've asked, you know, what does it look like daily to be on your team? And when you're part of our core team or or the internal team at G2i, you know, (laughs) Chris jokes that he sees uh, our CTO Lee, you know, more than he sees his girlfriend. (laughs) It's scary it's how true that is <laughs> yeah it's scary it's scary true and you know and lee's in, in mississippi and, i've never and met lee in real life <laughs> we've never met him in real life but like we know each other really well and that that comes through facetime and that comes through regular facetime stand-ups you know that we do i think probably infinite red they're a react native shop which i love jamin and the team i respect them greatly they have like a an always on video channel They've kind of rigged some things together and built it custom so that when they have, you know, when they're taking lunch, you know, they could sometimes they can jump in front of that, that camera and like have a, a, a non, you know, business or non-development type, you know, get to know you, the water cooler conversation. So I think a lot of these things together have made remote contracting, remote engineering, whether as part of a team or if you're, you know, a contractor, just uh, more at the forefront. I've had some conversations with different companies that do contracting of different types. I think the most recent one was with Gigster, and they have kind of a high-end contracting model. But one of the things I, I discussed with Roger, if I remember our conversation correctly, was this idea that the software that we build these days, well, the components that we use, React has literal components, but there's also things like AWS, and there's some well-defined best practices in Node.js, for example. This is one of the reasons I think that that contracting has gotten better, because there's just more information around how to code properly, and whereas in the past, if you would have contracted a project, you might have ended up with this rat's nest 
of code that was not very well written. And if you wanted to take it over and scale it and build it out, then you might have all kinds of technical debt from day one. But it feels like today, contracting is a little bit safer because, first of all, you can build products, you can build a better product with less code. And second of all, the code that gets written is generally of higher quality. Do, do you find that to be the case, or do you think I'm do you think I'm I'm a little overly optimistic about the general state of contracting? Yeah, I could touch on that briefly for, and I know that for us specifically, we purposely put every developer through a set of tests, I guess for lack of a better term, so that we know when they're on a project, they are following those best practices those React best practices of component-based stateless architecture. So there really isn't any technical debt. And that's why we focus in an area like that. And I think that's you know why it is growing is because you can get it. Most of our shorter length projects start with that. They start with you know, contractors coming in, but then they take that product and what they've learned and they continue to use it and build on it, you know, forever because it's, it's built from the beginning using best practice. We make sure that that is part of the knowledge, not just some kind of technical or language specific, but it's best practices also. So you guys run a React development team. You have jobs in React.js and React Native, and you find clients with those jobs, and you have a team of engineers that build those products. So how did you get to this point where you ended up building a development team exclusively for React JS and React Native projects? Yeah, I mean, well, it wasn't on purpose, I'll tell you that much. I started out, you know, in web development and on the front end, basically in Africa, in Kenya. I was doing missionary work with street kids and I came back and I was I had a technical background, you know, and charity that they asked me for a website and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I figured it out. Um, so that's how it started for me. And eventually, you know, G2I was just local focused here in South Florida and our projects were getting bigger and bigger. And we were starting to outsource to engineers in in Europe to help us across the stack. And it was Sam Breed of uh, QuickLeft at the time. He was the CTO of QuickLeft. He pushed our team into using React. The team loved it after about a week of complaining about JSX and a couple other things at first, but they got over it really quickly when they saw the benefits. And we were building a really big EMR project, electronic medical records in the healthcare space. And the client had some issues legally with, with their competitors and they shut down the project overnight. So I was newly married, had a baby on the way. And you know we had a team in Europe and we didn't know what to do. So really we started connecting to you know Y Combinator startups, really not even on purpose and other startups and they needed augmentation. They didn't need someone to go away and come back in 30, 60, 90 days and here's the finished product or check in every once in a while. They needed engineers to get to demo day at Y Combinator to scale after they got funding before they could you know, hire the team. And it was connecting with Caleb. Honestly, Caleb Meredith, he's now at Facebook. He was, you know, I hired him when he was barely 18 and he came in and, and he was the first person to say, hey, let's move away from this dev shop thing and, and let's just vet engineers technically and match them with companies. So he started that process and we've done it like that for about two and a half years now. We also provide, you know, vetting and sourcing for onsite roles in New York City, San Francisco, Seattle, and, and a couple other cities. 
across the states. So people come to you, was it that vetting thing? So if somebody is looking for a full-time React engineer and they don't know how to do the interview process appropriately, they outsource the interviewing to you? They outsource everything in the sense that, you know, most of our companies are just, they're larger companies, they're moving fast, and they, you know, the biggest disparity between supply and demand is in the React and React Native ecosystem. So, you know, we know intimately our community and, and we love our community and we want to give back to our community, but we also can find engineers and then technically vet them. So in the end, you know, these companies get a very technically focused profile with, you know, a code challenge, you know, score, actual code written, a technical interview score and notes, some video as well we're starting to add of our interview process. And it just speeds up, you know, things on their end in terms of making decisions. So this is the kind of business that in the past would have looked like a business that is not scalable because it looks like a matchmaking business or it's like a consultancy business. And those are typically thought of as these less sexy, less scalable businesses. But my sense is that because of simply the quality of the tooling, whether it's Slack or Asana or Gmail, or just the fact that everybody's online all the time, so your responsiveness is higher, things have changed where businesses that previously would not have been scalable actually are scalable. And in addition, you just have an increase in liquidity and quality of engineers and the leverage of engineers that your transactions can be of higher value per engineer. Do those things hold true? Is have things changed where a uh, you know where this in the past this would have looked like an Accenture type of business where you know I think people associate Accenture with you know not to speak badly about Accenture it's a great business but I think people associate with it kind of as a company that's that's very big and has a lot of process associated with its large consultancy. You can now have a consultancy that is that is scalable without a large. A core workforce that is mediating that consultancy. Has it become easier to build a scalable business with this model? It's definitely become easier, but it goes back to like, no, our market isn't as sexy as some other, you know, markets. And we're okay with that. But given that the remote culture is stronger, yes, it's easier. It's been done before. There's other companies out there that have scaled very large. And we're also not just trying to scale like large, but we're niche at the same time. And we're really focused on doing the best in the React and React Native ecosystem that we can possibly do. And then going out into the other areas, you know, that, that we can scale into. So, you know, we want quality first before we, we get to the scale. And, you know, ultimately it is about finding the best possible engineers you can and also helping some of the, the mid-level engineers grow which is a part of our process. It's ultimately about matching them to really great companies that place a high value on on engineering. Then there's some of the infrastructure questions. You know, how do we build our infrastructure? You know, do we do it from scratch? How much do we build? How much do we buy? And those are really interesting questions, which we're starting to to answer now. But I never want to make like the main thing, not the main thing. So we can get lost in building our own software. And then, you know, five years down the line, we're actually behind. And to add to the scaling point, you know, we are very focused and we're very technical too, which is a little bit different. Like we're like, 
we drink the React Kool-Aid or, you know, the technology Kool-Aid. I and mean, I spent many, many years as a senior consultant for Deloitte. So I've definitely lived that world. And you could scale that by bodies, right? Yeah, people. But the way that we're pursuing this is a scaling it by technique and technology and focus in the specific industry. Mm-hmm. So React, why do people care about React? Why is it easy to find customers who specifically want React? If they're focused just on their own end product, you would think that they would be coming to you and saying, I don't care what front-end framework or stack you're using, just build this product that we have a spec for. Why do people care about the programming stack when they're coming to you building a product, and why specifically do they want React? I think a lot of it kind of goes back to your initial observation in that you don't have to throw the code away anymore. Like you're building something, and for me, it's the component architecture that I love, and that makes it so reusable and and it leaves people in the reusable dry sense more than other frameworks. But I know the first, very first project I did with React was actually React Native, but similar idea. The product owner had the same question and thought it was silly. But after he saw what we accomplished in a short amount of time and how rapidly we were adding to that, he was sold and giving talks at meetups about how great React was. So (laughs) I think it's one of those things that once you see it, it makes sense. And then when you add to something like React Native, you have this, if you build on this ecosystem for your primary web you know, product, and you can take that knowledge directly to mobile, it's just, I mean, for someone who's hiring people, it just makes sense. You're looking for the same engineer type for both areas, and then you can reuse all these things. I started covering the React stack of technologies near the beginning of Software Engineering Daily. Why did the React projects gain so much traction? Yeah, I guess, again, for me, it was the... So when it came out, it was heresy, right? You were putting... You were combining your logic, your layout, and your style in one thing. And it was totally against what everybody else had told us we should do. And then MVC was the way, the pattern of future and what everything was supposed to follow. So it came out with this just totally off the rails approach at software development and ideas and people kind of bucked against it, but then they start using it kind of like, just like the example I gave a minute ago, you start using it and it just, the light bulb goes off and it makes sense. And then that kind of spread like wildfire, you know, popular people started adopting and contributing to it and talking about it, which encouraged other people to try it. And when they try it, it's this new way of thinking became refreshing for me from, you know, my personal experience. And I think that translates to all developers who have struggled and have been frustrated with this whole crazy JavaScript ecosystem that now there's this thing that's a lot like object-oriented programming all of a sudden. It's just nice to, to use and it's nice to you know, write code in it, and it's just the fatigue is lower. When I started covering React, it seemed very exciting, and it seemed like there was the potential for React and React Native to take over all of mobile development eventually, like where it would be web and mobile development. It would all be this integrated development experience where everybody is working in React. I don't have the sense that we're quite there yet, if that is an eventual future. 
But where are we in the timeline of React developments? What are the biggest new React developments happening today? Well, yeah, I mean, you're right on the adoption. For whatever reason, React Native adoption has been much slower than React Web. Of course, it's not as old, but still, it's just in the velocity of it. It has been slower. I'm honestly not sure why, because I'm obviously a huge fan of it and have used it in production for many things, and it works great. I don't know if it's just the... And I don't know, Gabe, if you have some ideas of why, but the adoption for that is not as rapid. I think part of it, just a kind of a speculation, but it, again, going back to, there's a huge gap in terms of supply and demand for React Native developers, and especially at the mid and senior levels. And, you know, Lee, maybe you can talk to this a little bit, but if you're having a hard time finding mid to seniors in this technology, it can be kind of scary because what happens when you hit problems with optimization, what happens when you hit problems where you need to introduce native code, these kind of exceptions to the rules that you need a little bit more of a senior engineer to tackle. Uh, if you have a have trouble finding that senior engineer, it may back you off from React Native because it's a lot easier to find a senior iOS or senior Android engineer and get them onto the team and work in a, a native code base that's familiar to them. I mean, has, have you had some of that experience, Lee, even before working with us? Yeah, and that's a great point. And even just to add to the why of that is, you know, web application developers already know JavaScript. So going from Angular to React is not an entire mind shift, right? But mobile developers do not come from that world. They come from Java or Objective-C. So we are talking about a pretty dramatic mind shift and it does help to have some of that native background if you're the only engineer you know, on a team doing a React Native project. So that's probably the biggest hurdle is just the two different worlds on the mobile side. Here's my thesis, and I could be totally wrong, but in the earliest days of mobile development, I remember this series of technologies like Accelerator and... I don't know what else there was. There were these other tools that were cross, they promised the cross-platform dream and they never worked as well as they advertised. And I feel like people got burnt out and they just decided that they had to do native development. And there is this hangover from the experience of trying out these tools that didn't work. Am I mistaken there? No, that's definitely happened. You had Accelerator, you had Xamarin, you had PhoneGap, you had uh, a lot of those things, Ionic, uh, a lot of those things that were kind of doing the same thing. And the early ones, it did, sometimes it didn't even save anything. You had to still write separate components for Android and iOS in the early days. So it didn't save you a lot of time and it was a lot of overhead. And I, I definitely think people had a bad taste in their mouth. It became, even for people who didn't write code for a living would tell you that it will never be as fast as native. What did React Native do that was different that made it more amenable to actually shipping stuff and fulfilling its promises? Well, it's so the way it's built, obviously, is a little bit different. You know, they opened up a direct JavaScript runner that you could have access to that was a lower level, so it ran faster. But also the way React Native works is that there's a native component married to all of your JavaScript stuff. So it's actually running native code and things like PhoneGap, obviously it wasn't, it's just a web view. And Accelerator definitely did some of that early on, but it was early on. And then I think another, to another point that you know, Gabe points out all the time is, look at the device that you're holding right now. 
is massively more powerful than the device from five, six, seven years ago. So, I mean, that alone is a big difference that everything runs faster. That's a big reason why electrons, you know, become more popular as well. So, you know, and I see larger companies like uh, Airbnb, you know, they're using React Native, but they're not using 100% React Native. You know, most of their code is native and, and where they were, were using WebViews before, maybe they're using React Native there. There's different levels of adoption as well on, on these, you know, larger companies. Discord, for example, they do, you know, uh, TeamSpeak for gamers, um, really well known. And they host our, our Reactive Flux account as well. So they're great for open source. But Discord, you know, they've, they've chosen to not use React Native for, for Android. They just didn't feel that the performance was good enough on Android, but they use it for iOS mixed in with their native code. And it creates a, a great performance solution uh, that I use daily. You know, I, I know of one other company that's moved away from React Native after having a pretty sizable code base for some performance issues, some issues maybe with, you know, resources, and the, the CTO did change over. Like in terms of performance, we really don't have a one-to-one -one case study. I don't think that really exists of like a production level application that was done in say Swift and, and now is in React Native. We'd love to create one. We're going to talk to one of our clients about doing that. But like we don't have any really truly objective uh, performance case studies. But that incremental adoption is such a big selling point for React and React Native. You don't have to jump with both feet in if you're not ready to. You can just start to s select some components or some screens that you want to migrate to the technologies just to try it out, just to get a taste of it. And that's such a big deal, I think, where you don't have to, like you're saying, build an entire... A clone of your application React Native to really just understand how does this work? Is this going to be useful for us? Is this going to be productive for us? A lot of companies have started that way and are still running that way, picking and choosing where they need the most performance. They stay in the native and uh, where they're willing to make some trade-offs or where the performance differences are negligible, uh, they're moving to React Native in order to gain that shared code base. Gabe, I think you mentioned Electron as growing in popularity partly as a byproduct of the advance in, in device quality. So I, I thought Electron was mostly a, a laptop side thing or a desktop for desktop applications. Is, it, does Electron have an impact on mobile applications? Not that I know of, but I was really referring to the same kind of idea that our laptops have gotten faster over the years. So okay. whereas we didn't have the same resources, you know, CPU power, you know, uh, memory, maybe six, eight, 10 years ago, and developers would have pushed back and said, no, we have to do native for desktop. Now it's like, okay, we're willing to make some of those trade-offs so that we, oh. because we're responsible for now, not only the web, but our, our desktop version. And we're responsible for mobile as well. So then something like React and the ecosystem that surrounds it makes more sense because of the increase in, in, in technology. And to that point, even with the development side, you know, I have a MacBook Air that's a couple of years old now, and I'm able to run the React Native simulator on it without any real performance issues. The only time it really drags is when I have Slack open as well, because I'm in way too many Slack channels. But it's actually quite shocking how uh, good the simulator runs on that MacBook Air, which you could look at and say, well, that's really underpowered to do this. but it's even great for, for the development process as well. Well, that's reassuring. I've done some recent iOS 
development and the simulator was also pretty good for a, at least a simple application but it's good to hear that that even for maybe for more complex development the the quality is good but i guess with the electron stuff electron is 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 it a resource hog yeah for sure if you're you know writing the same uh, desktop app you know natively it's going to take up less resources i mean but that that's generally speaking high level of course there's things you can do to optimize everything but you know, Slack runs on Electron. I'm sitting here in Get Station, which is great. It has all my things I normally open up in Chrome. That's Electron. I, Discord uses Electron, I believe. What did you call? What did you say? Get Station. Yeah, Get Station. G E G E T. Get Station. Get Station. Yeah. What is that? It allows me to have about 300 different apps, you know, that, that I use. But I have Slack, Todoist, Gmail, HubSpot, Discord, Trello, Paper, Lever angel list you know and so on and so forth in one browser where all my notifications are easy to to change you know side panel that's just allows me to also bookmark the different apps that i want to use and the different pages within those apps that i want to use it's made for modern web apps you know and you get lost in 50 chrome tabs so it it solves that it was actually uh i think it was michael siebel from from yc that, that posted it up and i've been using it ever since Interesting, because I am <laughs> I'm in that mode where my MacBook is basically an operating system <laughs> that is basically has a Chromebook on top of it because <laughs> everything I do is just Chrome tabs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep, that's our life. Yeah, talking a bit about the changing nature of the React development environment. There's a few things I wanted to explore. So React has a newer feature called asynchronous rendering. Explain what async rendering is. Yeah, so it's, you know, obviously very new. And it's pretty big change in the fact that the lifecycle, which is really nice in React, is changing. So, like, the component will mount, component will receive props, component will update. They're going to mark them as unsafe, then mark them as deprecated, and then remove them. And these are, you know, pretty pivotal pivotal things that people use and they're going to replace them with, you know, a Git derived state for props. So asynchronously, a component can receive its props and state changes and then render when it needs to, instead of kicking off all these events, basically, or listening to all these events. And a a common use case example, I think is like if you were loading data, right. And, you call that on component will mount or something. The state is going to do things before that data comes in. This is just by nature of the way that the life cycle works. These things are going to kick off and happen and update. And then the data is going to come in and those things are going to re-update and kick off. So with async, you can actually tell the whole component, say, look, don't do anything until I get this specific prop or this specific state change and then render. So it's a really smart approach to it, streamlining the whole render process, but doing it in an asynchronous way so that it's not based on all these steps and it's just based on a, you know, a single asynchronous stream, if you will. Hmm. And does async rendering have a significant change to how a React developer writes their code? Basically around those, those lifecycle hooks, you know, it will change that. Really with modern best practices, those aren't used as much. We really, you know, for our devs, we really push stateless components and some kind of a manager container, but this will still improve. Like you can really view the incoming props and state change and render. So it will cut down on your render cycle. Um, so there may be a little bit more 
if you really want to be performant, there may be some more checks that you have to do that you normally wouldn't do. And you're going to be missing some life cycle events that you may be used to having. So in that way, it will be different. There are some language tools like Reason and Flow and TypeScript that make it easier to avoid compiler errors in React. Do the developers on your team have a preferred way of getting type safety? I think each person kind of has their preference. I could say from my experience, so TypeScript is is a pretty dramatic change, right? It's very different and it compiles everything and it's like a whole nother language within a language. I personally like it, but it's definitely a, a shift that everyone has to be kind of on board with. And Flow allows you to adopt it more gradually. The negative I've seen to that is if you give a developer an option to make their job a little more difficult, they're not going to take that option. So when Flow is optional, it tends to just get ignored. Um, It just really comes down to how intently you want to focus on type checking. Um, A lot of the guys we interview bring up these same points. Um, Reason is very new, so they haven't gotten into a lot of that yet for their work. But a lot of them actually reference prop types, which is another good way to try to, you know, force that type safety is to use prop types. And when prop types were actually removed from the core React to a different library, I think people will assume, oh, well, we don't have to use it anymore because it's not in there anymore. And it's just not as used as often as it used to be. But that's another good way of doing it. Hmm. What about server-side rendering? So, I know you can make your React application get rendered on the client or on the server, and there are advantages to rendering on the server side, such as, you know, if you render on the server side, then it puts less burden on the client. It might have some advantages for caching. It might be easier to get your page indexed by Google, for example, or it might get your meta tags, like if you're doing social sharing then you need the server-side rendering to happen uh, in order for the meta tags to render properly. What's the state of server-side rendering? Do React apps typically all get server-side rendered these days, and is it hard to implement that? Well, I think to the points you just mentioned, they're all very good ones. And the initial load time is also a good benefit for just pure server-side rendering. And I think it, it comes down to if you need those things, right? If you need those things you just mentioned, then it is something you have to pursue. I would say it's not used as often. It's, you know, it's not in there as often as it is. It's way more often than it is because Create React app is very popular starter and it doesn't include that. So that's how people get started. And then they typically add server-side rendering later if they need those things that you mentioned. It's not difficult. It's an ex- simple express with middleware application. To me, I mean, you get those benefits, but then you can go a little bit further with uh, code splitting, right, which allows you to then load certain components or groups of components later instead of downloading the entire bundle at once, which, again, speeds up the whole process and experience. So it gives you a lot of, for large applications, it gives you options and choices of optimization, speed, bundle sizes, things like that. On the Software Daily app that we've been building, we use Vue, and server-side rendering for Vue.js has been not 
trivial for us to implement, so we haven't really gotten there yet. Instead, we are using this thing called prerender.io, which is, I guess, a way of... Uh, it lets you do client-side rendering, but it, it renders on the client, and then it caches it in prerender.io, and then you can just load the page from prerender.io. So it's kind of this nice caching CDN middleware sort of thing that I, I thought was was pretty cool when I found out about it because it, it lets, you know, if you're having trouble implementing server-side rendering, you can just have a middleware client do that rendering for you and then cache it and then read from the cache. I thought was, that was a pretty creative way to, to shortcut that. Yeah, sounds really cool. So talking a little bit more about React Native, how easy is it for people to take React components off the shelf these days and and have those React components work on web and on React Native? Has it become this easy Lego block experience of putting together UIs where you can just look through an index of React components and build your cross-platform application? No, not in the cross-platform way. Now, when we approach a build, we do approach it in that Lego way for that platform. So if you're building a mobile application, we most definitely build Legos components separate and stateless. And then you can definitely use those Legos to build your screens in a much more rapid rate, but it's on that platform. For the multi-platform, the biggest use case, and I know uh, Gabe can kind of give some details on the specifics, but there's React Native for web. It tries to do that gap, that you mentioned. And, but for me, the, the important thing to remember about Facebook's mantra is it's learn once, write anywhere, right? So the whole, the whole Java saying that write once, run anywhere sort of kind of worked if you have all the right jars and you installed it right and you have the right, you know, J2E installation and the JRE. So it was a problem. But Facebook's approach is really once you learn how to do this, you can replicate it either way easily. So that's really the intent. It wasn't the like the Java run write once and run it anywhere. That wasn't their mantra. It was learn it and then you can write code like this in multiple environments. But uh, uh, but Gabe can give you a really good example of React Native Web and how customers are using that. Yeah, I mean React Native for Web was written by a Twitter engineer for Twitter Lite for the web application on mobile devices. And it's been used by Major League Soccer uses it. I think who else uses it in production? Sony uses it. And uh, I mean, Major League Soccer uses React Native for web, the web for desktop on their React Native apps as well for mobile. So they're able to have a much more tightly you know, integrated and shared code base because they're using React Native for web. But there's caveats, you know, to using React Native for web. You know, routing would be one of them. But yeah, it's not like widely used, but I think it will become more and more popular. So to be clear, React Native web allows you to reuse a component for React Native iOS or React Native Android on your web. Yeah, or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, you can share them because you're writing React Native. Yes, exactly. Mm. The difference between a React component and a React Native component is what exactly? Like, if I'm writing something for the web with just classic React, React JS, I write a component for React JS, and if I was using a React Native component, what's the differences there and the similarities? Indeed, the differences are what those things actually reference, right? So, in React Native, you would use 
it, you were writing JSX just like you would in a web application, but instead of div, for example, you would use a view, and that view is actually directly tied to a native thing, a view in Objective-C or in Swift or in Intent or whatever. So it's actually references a native piece of code. In web, obviously, it's referencing HTML. So it's they're referencing or they're representing two different things. And so if you wrote a component for React Native iOS and you ported that to the web via React Native Web, what's going on in that porting process? Yeah, I haven't dug into the specific code, but think of it in the, in the fact that like that view references a React Native uh, Apple view object. And for the web, that view will most likely represent a div. Right. So there's like a mapping of what would be a, a view or what would be a picker in iOS as a select box in web. So because honestly, the components for the native for HTML and the native, you know, they're, they're similar. They're just called different things and they're rendered differently because they run in a different environment. But they're very similar on what they hope to achieve. So by mapping it one or the other based on targeted platform, you should be able to use one code for different things. Now, of course, there's different properties and functions for others. That That's what React Native for Web does. It handles those for you. It does that navigation or that split for you. And I know this isn't the only project that's you know trying to pull this off. Leland Richardson was working on React Primitives. There's a couple other ones I've seen. I heard the most about React Primitives, but I definitely think they've hit a wall once you get outside of things like view button, very kind of low level, simple components, you start to get into complexity in terms of how are we going to render this across all three of these platforms, iOS, Android, and web. And it really does get get tricky at a certain point. And I think Lee, you know, your point about Facebook was all about learn once right anywhere. We're not really, everybody kind of or not everybody, but there was a lot of momentum towards, uh, oh, this means we can write once, run anywhere, and that's really not uh, where we're at yet. Although I think it would be it would be great to be able to truly write React Native once, deploy to web, Android, iOS, VR, wearables, you know, all of the different experiences that are pretty still nascent and all the ones that are coming and aren't even here yet. That would be a really great selling point if we can start to, to figure some of those things out. Yeah, and just another team that's using you know something across all platforms that's React centric is Microsoft. I forgot that they developed their own kind of version of React Native for web. It's called React XP. And while I don't know a ton about it, I did talk to their team lead, and they're using it across desktop, Android, and iOS for all their applications are in React XP. The other technology I wanted to explore a little bit of was GraphQL. So. GraphQL was one of the suite of technologies that Facebook unleashed in this swath of open source uh, developments. And there were integrations, I mean, there are integrations between GraphQL and, and React, but it's not like a tight coupling. People use GraphQL in other contexts. And I've enjoyed covering GraphQL, and it, it's one of these technologies where I can't quite grasp the speed of adoption because I will hear some people say, GraphQL has really improved our stack, or we set up GraphQL from day one, and it made, like I talked to my little brother the other day, and he set up GraphQL from day one on a project he made, and he said it just really helps 
shuttle him into the right way of thinking about data models. Although I think GraphQL is hard to understand for some people. I think there's the burden of setting up a GraphQL server that is the interloper for your queries, the interpreter for your queries. What is the adoption like for GraphQL? Is it overhyped? Are people getting a lot of value out of it? What are you seeing from the client base in terms of GraphQL? Yeah, so I've been surprised actually in how often we see it, especially with new projects or new applications. I really have been surprised it comes up a lot. But I on the same on the opposite side of that, I've been surprised at how little we see it for existing APIs. So like people not trying to integrate a piece of something in their existing API with it. I haven't seen a lot of that. So it's kind of weird. It's for the startup culture, it seems to be really, really popular. For the existing REST guys, it's like they're, I guess they, maybe they don't see the point. They're, they've probably been through that pain already and and just stick with what they have. But for rapid development, it's obviously quicker, right? So if you've been on a team for a long extended period of time and you're developing an application, maybe you're on the front end team, that whole dance of deciding we need this piece of data talking to the backend team about getting that piece of data, them telling you that you don't need that piece of data, and that whole handshake and, and figuring that out, finally adding it to a REST endpoint or a new REST endpoint, and then getting that to your application. I mean, that's a process. But with GraphQL, you're basically handing access to all of your permitted data points with a configurable query language, right? So you're allowing the front end engineers to get the data that they want and that they need without having dependency on a backend guy to add that. In addition to that, they can ask for exactly what they want. So you're not downloading this humongous data object to render somebody's name and phone number, right? So you can get literally just the name and phone number. So your your request is smaller. So therefore your app load time is smaller and just all around it's a more efficient way of handling data. And to that point, we've been working on some internal tooling and an application that Lee's been working on. We're interacting with an API where basically there's a webhook set up and off of that incoming data, we pull an ID, we hit an endpoint that we get a big blob back that all we really want is another ID to hit another endpoint that all we really want is another ID to finally hit the endpoint to get the data we wanted. So you're making all of these network requests, I mean, it's really wasteful in terms of overhead. And it's not really a big deal, right, when you have great bandwidth, but there are plenty of times where my bandwidth isn't so great. You know, even in South Florida, where I live, there are plenty of spots around my house where I can't get any phone signal and making all those network requests would just grind anything I want to do to a halt. And the ability to just have one endpoint that knows how to resolve the data in an efficient manner, and you're not making all of these network requests just to get the final uh, information that you wanted. You're not throwing away tons of data and being wasteful about it. I just think that's such a, a great selling point. And to any listeners that do have that existing REST and Postgres database or whatever they're using, I just, I mean, I hope they understand that GraphQL doesn't do anything, like, doesn't touch your. That it doesn't change your Postgres. You continue to use all of that stuff and simply add this new object, whatever it may be, customers or users or people or products as a little layer 
on top of that. So, right, it just talks to your database. It doesn't change anything on that end. Like people are definitely resistant to change on the database side and the data layer as they should be. That's very important. That's your, in most cases, that's your business. And so it doesn't require you to use any certain database. It doesn't change that. It does. It's just simply an access layer on top of that. Right. It's a veneer. There's a company I worked at one time that had a ton of legacy code and this was one of my first introductions to how enterprises refactor legacy code. And by refactor, what they often do is paper over it with a new API. <laughs> and that's fine because you don't, you never want to cut out the giant rat's nest of code. You never want to cut out the big ball of mud. You want to paper an API over it that is simpler, that is easier to interact with, that is perhaps more efficient. And it's funny because that's essentially what GraphQL does. That Maybe they could have called it like veneer or something or like paperover.io or so- something. Lipstick. It's just lipstick. Yeah, lipstick. <laughs> lipstick. Lipstick. <QL>. <laughs> There you go. But yeah, I, th- I think, honestly, like, I wonder if GraphQL was the the wisest marketing choice for what the actual, what the product is, or if it would have had better adoption if they would have called it something different. But, but who knows? I mean, and who even cares? Because it seems like the adoption rate is going just fine. Even if it's a sleeping giant, it'll eventually, it seems like it is just, it, it's so popular among the people who actually use it, particularly the power users, that it's kind of an inevitability that it's, that it's going to be a widely, widely adopted product eventually. Yeah, I agree. You know, and you have Starbucks, New York Times, Pinterest, Intuit, GitHub, Major League Soccer. I mean, there, there's some larger companies pushing it forward as well. Apollo is amazing. So I, I think I agree. It's a matter of time. But yeah. I think Lipstick.io <laughs> lipstick <QL. laughs> is, is, we'll be working on that for you. What, yeah. You guys need to just fork it? And then rebrand it, and then call it like a G two I product. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's like the Bitcoin Cash model, or like the uh, you know some of these blockchains where they just fork Bitcoin and then rebrand it as something else. And <laughs> how can we work blockchain into it? Yeah, we'll that's figure it the out. key to success. <laughs> we'll there it you out. go. There you go. No, it is. It is. You actually just replicate everybody's schema on a distributed replicated ledger so that nobody actually has to run the GraphQL server. You have it distributed across a blockchain. There we go. All right. So we have the ICO. It's It'll be in three months and the pre-sale begins today. Anybody that wants to buy lipstick tokens can just send me an email. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, okay, we got to wrap up here. I'm you know, just a little bit interested still in, in the business model, just to, to close off of G2i, because I think there's a lot of people out there that are thinking about what business to build. There's, there's, you know, definitely engineers listening that are trying to build a product, or they're trying to figure out how to start their own business. And, and I think, you know, one thing you can do to, to get started is, is obviously start a podcast. If you have no idea what, what other kind of business to build, that's that's one avenue. Another avenue is is consulting. You can build a consulting business, and maybe that consulting business can evolve into a product or a marketplace. And I think that's kind of the evolution that G2i has gone through, and it seems like it's been very satisfying for you guys. And I'm guessing that it is beginning to congeal into more of a vision. So I'm wondering... 
you know, there are these varying big outcomes for consulting style businesses. You have companies like Fog Creek or ThoughtWorks that have started to build products. You have Accenture, as we mentioned earlier, that where you can scale up the consulting business by building internal tools and managing that business very effectively. How do you see the business of G2I evolving towards the future? That's a fantastic question. One, I've done a lot of thinking of uh, on and been sharing the vision a lot more often, you know, with the team here and, and others that we're, we're hiring. I think it's a mixture of, you know, building products. I think we have some product ideas for sure, but our, our main focus right now as a company is building, you know, internal tooling to help automate some of these processes that, that we want to automate so that we can grow and scale and become a larger company. But, you know, a big part of my thought process is we're, founders are always optimistic, right? Like we have that bias. We need to be to get through the ups and downs. But I've never done much thinking about what happens if we grow to a 50 or $150 million company. What happens at the end of that? Or what happens if we don't make it and we fail, but we're in business for five years. So I've been thinking more about actually failing, not because we're actually planning on doing so, but like, who did we affect and how did we affect people during that journey? Maybe it's three years. Do, do we do we match a lot of engineers to great companies? Awesome. I'm really happy that we did that. And what else do we give? You know, and so we're a mission-driven company. And that means that, you know, my dream, honestly, is seeing like, we already do this. We started doing this. Where every contract that we sign, you know, takes a kid off the streets in Kenya. I've taken some of these kids off the streets myself with my own hands and watched them go from 10 years old, huffing glue, you know, homeless to, you know, having a a safe place to stay, going to school, you know, having parental figures in their lives. And so if we sent a couple thousand kids, you know, to school and got them off the streets and failed after three years, I think that would be awesome, to be honest with you. And we also want to get back to open source and we want to make this a company where, where grace is just central to, to the engine continuing to run. And that, that might mean like going be above and beyond to help one of our engineers out who, who doesn't necessarily deserve it, but that's not what grace is about. It, it's about like a, a gift and loving our engineers well. And same thing with our internal culture, you know, making sure that like there's humility is a big piece of that. The guys, though I'm the founder, they do performance reviews for me. I think that everything I've learned from like marriage counseling, <laughs> I've gotten to bring in as a founder to like doing well interpersonally with, with my team. So it's, it's some of the aspects that I just mentioned that, that like, that's what I really care about. And I think as a byproduct, we'll be able to grow healthy as a company and larger, but you know, as, as a mission driven company, it's not just all about getting to the hundred million dollar mark or even just how to do it. It's about like what really matters to you and your team. And I think to that point too, you know, as we look to build more internal tools and become more efficient in some of our processes, there's always, I think, a trade-off of when you automate a process, you also remove some of the human element for it. And in some processes, that's fine and that's what you want. And in others, that human elephant actually, or the human element is the uh, defining factor of what makes us different, I think. You know, we place a very high value on the relationships we have uh, both with our clients and with the developers who come through here. You know, even if 
for some reason the developer never gets a job through us we want to treat them well and we want them to leave and say you know those guys did right by me as far as it was in their ability to do so and you know so there's definitely a balance of how we're talking about how to be more efficient and implement things um, like automation like machine learning down the road like all of these types of things we want to bring in but also you know have the human side the gray side that Gabe was talking about where we're able to really know the people that we're working with. We're able to take care of them while we have a relationship with them. And um, we just continue to have good momentum in that way. I mean, our business is a lot of referrals. And I don't think that was necessarily uh, designed. But it's. I think it's just a byproduct of Gabe setting the culture of, of how people are to be treated. And that really being such a big part of what we do. And even companies who never hired an engineer for us will send us referrals because they just they trust us and i think that just speaks a lot to the the culture that's been built here you know i came in a year ago where gabe had already been doing this for a while and it was it was infectious it was already built in the habits were there and i think that's such a big deal for why we're able to grow and continue to see success all right guys well it's been awesome talking to you and i've enjoyed working with g2i in the past so Thanks for building a great business, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Jeff. It was a blast. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Wow.